This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All this week, we've been sharing conversations around the coronavirus, now known as COVID-19. Tim Sakahara is a spokesman for the State Transportation Department. He sat down with us earlier this morning to talk about a recent docking of a cruise ship in Honolulu, which made a decision not to disembark its passengers this past weekend. Well, we certainly understand that there's a lot of attention and maybe even some anxiety from the folks uh, out there. So regarding that one ship you mentioned, that's the Nippon Maru, and it was a passenger cruise ship based out of Japan, but it was coming from Ensenada, Mexico. And the ship itself, uh, the leadership or captain of that ship, uh, made its own decision to not allow its passengers to disembark when they got to Honolulu Harbor. It was only going to be here for a day stop anyway before it moved on to Japan. But the ship itself uh, did not allow passengers to disembark. That wasn't a state or federal government directive. That was on its own, just, I think, out of an abundance of caution. Um, there's a lot of attention on cruise ships. I mean, even the other day, there was a passenger cruise ship that had nothing to do with Asia, but it, it left port and came back. Um, and media jumped on assumptions that, oh, it had to do something with, with the COVID-19 or coronavirus and things. And no, it hadn't. A passenger had suffered a heart attack and needed additional medical attention. So it just came back to port to be able to help that passenger. And that port was? Honolulu Harbor um, and, and things. But what I can say regarding harbors is that uh, the DOT is working with the United States Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is the lead and the captain of the port. Um, it has issued a directive that any passenger cruise ships that have been in China within the last 14 days will not be allowed to port at any of Hawaii's harbors, um, first and foremost. Although I should also mention that there are no regularly scheduled cruise ships coming from China at all. Not to say that one specially couldn't come, but there really aren't any uh, passenger cruise ships from China at this point, and there haven't been any scheduled. Regarding cargo ships, because certainly cargo ships uh, do come from all over the world, um, it's similar. So any cargo ship that has been in port in China within the last 14 days, that crew will not be able to disembark. And they are required. If any of those crew members do suffer any symptoms or, or, or display any symptoms, they are required to tell authorities and the captain of the port. Um, I should say, too, though, that any cargo ship uh, typically that comes from China to Honolulu takes about 14 days to a month anyway just in transit to get here. So really that 14-day quarantine period will likely take place over um, at, while it's overseas and while it's in, in route to Honolulu. Um, and I should also say that there are very few actual cargo ships coming from China. Um, from my understanding, it's really every other week or so, every two weeks or so, or beyond that. So there aren't that many. It's not like they were coming in every day. And what about uh, fishing vessels? Well, from China? I mean, it would be the same thing, right? They would, they would, they would uh, have to do the same requirements. Um, from my understanding, though, there aren't really any China-based fishing vessels that come to Hawaii. Okay, and then the Coast Guard would be monitoring Correct. that situation. Correct, anyway. and again, and if anybody displayed any symptoms, they would uh, have to tell authorities. And then actually, if they did, then the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would come over and then inspect uh, that crew member or those people um, at the harbors, just like they do at the airports. Okay, and then I know that earlier this week, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green met with a number of the unions, I think the stevedores, a number of public unions as well, just because of the concern about this very thing. And, and I believe the State Health Department has updated the guidelines for employers just to allay their employees' fears about these things. Correct. And, and at the airports, uh, DOT has been meeting with employees, um, and that's not just state employees, but that's private employees or airline employees, anybody who works at the airport, and not just at Honolulu, but at the neighbor islands as well, just to be able to provide some information directly from the sources. Uh, we've been joined by the Department of Health, who has been a great partner in providing information. And so those have been happening at the, the neighbor island airports. And it gives, an, uh, it, it gives the employees an opportunity to ask questions as well, hear the responses, and hopefully to put their, their minds at ease uh, about, about coming to work. And we did talk with uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Ireland earlier in the week, you know, talking about the screening that's happening at the airports, you know, and uh, I know he had mentioned that in the groups that he's in touch with, they flag a concern about this virus like the first week of January. So it was obviously on people's radars, and so it's something that people, you know, have been monitoring for a while. It has, and I will say that 
the state is doing a very good job. All the different agencies are partnering together, communicating with each other, and working towards uh, managing this situation. Because, you know, like a lot of people have said, Hawaii gets a lot of international uh, travelers from, from Hawaii that have traveled over Asia or the world. So it's not out of the realm for someone from Hawaii to be able to come down with this virus. Uh, fortunately, at this point, there hasn't been any people in Hawaii, at least, that have, uh, have, have come down with the virus. Um, but there is a lot of uh, coordination and efforts um, in addition to working with the state uh, and the federal agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and uh, the Customs and Border Protection Agencies, who are the ones at the airport. Honolulu uh, is one of 11 airports that can accept passengers who have been in China, and they are working on their screening process, which includes doing the, the non-contact temporal scanners to check all of the temperatures of anybody who's coming from China or had been in China. It's also important to note there are no direct flights from China at this point, though the only one we had has been suspended. Um, but that doesn't mean someone can't come in on a, on a uh, layover flight or from some other country and things. And so those people are being screened. Right. And the airlines, I, I believe, are, um, you know, they've canceled some flights, I think, through March. And I guess then it's just watching to see what transpires with this globally. Correct. Yeah. And even the one uh, airline, China Eastern, was the only airline that had a, a direct flight from Shanghai to Honolulu. It, even before all this happened, um, had been making arrangements to reduce that flight. It wasn't a daily flight anyway, but it was going to go down to two flights a week in March and then likely suspend that route altogether come this summer. Obviously, that got sped up a little bit because of the the coronavirus, and so, um, but there aren't any other direct flights to anywhere in, in Hawaii. What are you seeing at the airports? More people walking around with masks? So people, fortunately, to their credit, are being very calm, which is good because there is no reason to overreact at this point from a passenger perspective. You know, the health department can talk more about their recommendations for travel. But for the most part, people are uh, are doing well. It's a personal choice at this point if they want to wear a mask. I've heard the health department experts say that, you know, if you are sick and symptomatic, I mean, the mask will help you prevent spreading your germs to other people, but it doesn't necessarily do much for protecting you from other people if they are sick, um, right? So for the most part, the, the, the airports are operating as normally um, in terms of just flights coming and going, but they are very proactive in all the federal and state partners that are working to make sure that they screen the proper people and to, to check people out. I will say that Honolulu even before all this happened, was one of 20 airports in the country that already had a full-time permanent CDC quarantine station at the airport. So it was already tasked with trying to identify anybody, uh, international travelers coming in who might display symptoms of any virus. And so they're already working to that end before all this happened. And now it's been elevated. They've added more staffing, more screeners per shift, and uh, it's just been escalated uh, since this all began. That was Tim Sakahara, spokesman for the State Transportation Department, talking about the snapshot at our harbors and our airports as we screen for the COVID-19 virus. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mary Mackey, author of The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the tropical jungle that exists both outside us and within. Sunday at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, Backyard Quiz Time.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the founder of Hawaii Hochi. Born in Yokohama, Japan in 1877, he was the third son of a British trader and a Japanese woman. In 1899, he moved to Hawaii to help his brother in Nahalehu on the Big Island, on Hawaii Island, and afterwards moved to Honolulu, and he opened up, uh, opened up a drugstore. A few years later, he started an informal law practice above his store, mostly because Japanese immigrants could not be lawyers at the time. In 1909, he led a strike of some 7,000 Japanese plantation workers, and in response, he co-founded the Higher Wage Association with Yasutaro Soga, editor of the Nippo Jiji, a Japanese newspaper. For the strike, he was jailed and fined $300. He was released four months later and found his store ransacked by the Hawaii Sugar Plan- Planters Association, who stole his account books looking for union documents. He sued the association and settled out of court. In 1912, he published the Hawaii Hochi for Japanese plantation laborers and would be a voice for them during his career. He saw the need for social protest and legal action by laborers against white plantation owners, while other newspapers did not. What is this publisher's name? That's our quiz for today. 941-3689-877-941-3689, if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. We all know that the harbors are Hawaii's lifeline, and you may not give shipping a second thought as you reach for that can of spam or that roll of toilet paper. Well, we were dockside when Matson's newest ship, the Lurleen, made its Matson voy or its maiden voyage to Honolulu last month. That's a sense of the rumblings uh, uh, on a working wharf. And today, we hear part of a conversation with Matthew Cox, CEO of Matson Navigation, about the company's plan to reinvigorate its fleet. It's spending a billion dollars to add four new ships. The Lurling is the third in line and is the largest and fastest vessel in the company's long history. Captain Matson named his daughter after the first ship bearing the name Lurling, and this is the sixth ship taking on that name. Previous vessels included luxury passenger liners, but this new container ship stretches out over three football fields and features its own ramp and has a greener footprint all around. It's an exciting time for Matson. Uh, there are significant efficiencies that are being built into this fleet renewal. The biggest uh, benefit to us is that because these ships are bigger and faster, we're able to operate with one fewer fleet unit. So we're going to go from a 10-ship deployment to a 9-ship deployment. That will allow us to cover the same amount of cargo that's required into the islands every week with one less ship. And, and if you were operating a power plant or a utility, it'd be like operating the same utility with one less uh, plant. So there's efficiencies that are built into it. Uh, it. It lowers our emissions impact and our environmental footprint. These ships have got all the latest technologies for safety and environmental uh, compliance. and they're just beautiful ships. They're fast, they're big, and we're excited about it. They're much more efficient, they consume less fuel, they're able to burn different kinds of fuel. The fuel tanks are in places between the cargo holds, so if the, God forbid, the we should strike the bottom of the ship or not, there's no fuel going into the water. Uh, they have um, emission cleaning systems, they have ballast water, which is used to balance the ship. Uh, the ballast water is treated uh, again, all around minimizing the environmental impact of the ships. The generators aboard the ship are EPA Tier 3 compliant, which means they're the most efficient engines that are basically in the world today. And so it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And so how does this ship compare? Uh, how does it stack up to other ships built in other countries? So the, the ships that are built for, for Matson were built specifically for the Hawaii trade. 
And so I would say that the ships are less expensive to be built in uh, overseas in foreign countries. The ships that we build are built to operate for 40 years. So the strength of the steel, the structural elements, these are all built in such a way to have a very long life. And so, um, and the quality and care that goes into this, U.S. shipyards are more expensive than international shipbuilding facilities, but no one builds a better ship in the world than the United States shipyards. One of our goals and objectives as a company is to meet or exceed all environmental standards. And we have a long tradition of doing that. Um, on January 1 of this year, there, the IMO, which is the International Maritime Association, which is a subset of the United Nations globally, um, changed the fuel requirements um, that just came into effect. And on January 1, you can't burn fuels that have more than 0.5% sulfur. And before, you could burn up to 3.5% sulfur in, in the bunker fuel or the, the fuel that we use to operate these engines. And so that sounds like a small difference, but sulfur is a natural lubricant. And so changing the chemical composition of the fuel to meet very worthy environmental standards uh, creates design changes, engine changes, lubricant changes, and there's a lot of technology that goes beyond uh, into that change. So part of this fleet investment relates to making sure we were staying current with uh, more stringent environmental standards that continue to evolve. And so the, the other benefit is, you know, it's thought worldwide that thousands, tens of thousands of people die each year who are at risk for respiratory illnesses and those kinds of things. So the idea of these new fuels were to minimize the amount of deaths that, uh, that occur annually as a result of uh, sulfur in the, uh, in the exhaust stacks of vessels. So it's a cleaner, greener ship. It's a cleaner, greener ship, yeah. And so can you talk about the capability of burning liquid natural gas? Yeah, so the, the vessel, these vessels were designed to eventually be converted to LNG. And what we did at the time that we spec the ship was that we built the ship bigger than it needed to be so that we could accommodate two very large LNG uh, containers that have not yet been put aboard the vessel. We built the engine, or we selected the engine, that would be able to burn that type of fuel. So this vessel is ready to be converted to LNG, but to us what was less clear at the time was is there a commercial source of LNG on the west coast in a port location for which we could use it as a fuel supply? And up to this point in time, there is no LNG facility or a LNG facility on the coast that could discharge and move uh, via barge or something that could fuel our ships. And when that occurs, we're gonna be taking a hard look at converting these vessels who were specifically designed to be converted to LNG when that fuel becomes available on the west coast. So when that happens, we'll be ready. We're on a journey, which is what's expected of us, to continue to find ways in which to reduce our environmental footprint. But we are definitely lowering the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the air, and we feel like it's our and every other company's obligation to do that. There's been a lot of talk about the harbor modernization plan. Can you uh, talk about how this works with the cranes? So uh, the nice part here uh, with the new vessel, as you can see right behind me, uh, the three brand new cranes. Those cranes were needed because the cranes that are just beyond them, the other three, are too uh, short and don't reach out far enough to be able to handle and pick up and unload cargo on the four new vessels. And so we needed, as part of a, uh, a group investment, to be able to uh, produce or work with new cranes uh, and have them installed in order to make full use of this vessel. Our older vessels can still use, in fact, you'll see just a vessel in front of this one uh, that are, that's our previous generation of vessels. And you can see that uh, the, the booms and the crane height is a little bit lower. Um, and so part of this is meant to work together. These cranes, um, we've upgraded our electric system. These are very efficient uh, crane hoists uh, that reduce the amount of um, energy load. Uh, they also, during the discharge of the vessels, like an electric car, generate electricity as they're bringing down the containers and putting that into a battery system that will again reduce the amount of, of electricity that we consume as part of the loading and unloading process. It's like a braking on a Tesla. You're basically producing more battery energy. It's the same concept with these cranes. The FAA had to step in, right? I mean, aren't they having to change flight patterns because of the larger cranes? 
Yeah, so we, we work closely with the state and with DOT and the FAA to make sure that we, we are not in the flight path. So FAA is concerned that if a plane took off and it was only on one engine, would it have adequate clear way to be able to avoid the cranes? And so we work very carefully with them. They're in the process of re relocating a, an older radio tower uh, that's in place to be able to create adequate pathways for for a plane if it were to get into trouble from not uh, hitting a crane uh, or having plenty of room to avoid the cranes. It's really construction activity that moves the needle for us. So the basic replenishment uh, for the consumers here in Hawaii uh, to meet tourist demand and the military has been relatively flat. We've seen a healthy but steady construction environment. So in a more robust construction environment, we would expect to see more volume. So our expectation in the future is we'll see uh, the economy here is still growing and that's terrific. Uh, it hasn't translated into significant additional freight volumes, but when we build our fleet and our networks, we're building it for the next 30 and 40 years. And so we wanted to build these ships with plenty of capacity to grow. So as the island economy grows over time, we're able to accommodate that growth when it occurs. That was Matson CEO, Matthew Cox. The company will welcome a sister ship to the Lurleen, the Matsonia, later this summer. The Lurleen was scheduled to arrive in Honolulu Harbor at around noon today in, the, in its second month of service to the Hawaiian Islands from the West Coast. Our reality check today with our, with our partners at Honolulu Civil B circles back to check on the status of those electric scooters. Remember the boot that Lime scooters got when they tried to muscle into the market a couple of years ago? Well, Civil Beat's Marcel Henri covers transportation issues. He joins us this morning. Hi there. Hey, Catherine. Happy almost Aloha Friday. Yes, and happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> So uh, what can you tell us? I know you're, you're covering the heart meeting today, uh, but do you have a story running today about the Lime scooters? Yeah, that's right. I wanted to check in and see where we're at on, on that whole situation. Uh, as many people might recall, uh, Lime uh, brand scooters, that's one of these you know, so-called mobility startups. Uh, a lot of them have these kind of these one-syllable snappy names, Lime Scoot jump, that sort of thing. So Lime uh, tried to come into the market in Honolulu about two years ago on Mother's Day weekend. It was the most impressive start, uh, like a launch basically, in a, in a new market that Lime had seen to that point. And then about four days later, uh, as you mentioned, the, the scooters were pulled off the streets and the sidewalks. The city cracked down pretty hard. Um, you know, Lime and a lot of those companies at the time, uh, their, their business model was to really just kind of parachute in without the proper approvals and, and, and consulting and cooperating with the cities, uh, essentially, you know, asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And that really didn't pay off here. Um, so, yeah, I was basically kind of looking at, at where we're at as far as those, those scooters ever making a return. Right. And I remember the mayor uh, had those uh scooters confiscated and, and held him in a bay. <laughs> yeah, about 100 of them, yeah. And I, I recall seeing these scooters in D.C., but the difference mm -hmm. between the sidewalks in D.C., I mean, those things are like five times larger than our sidewalks. Yeah, you know, wider sidewalks, maybe not quite as dense and compact in the urban core. So when you see, the, you know, the impact that these scooters had, especially when they initially launched, you know, when they were just kind of released, out in the streets, you can you can understand why there, there'd be some concern here. Um, what the the story today looks at is, you know, they, they are kind of taking their time here. Um, Hawaii, the the ledge, the legislature is looking to maybe update the vehicular code in ways that would kind of carve out a new designation for these scooters, so then they could be uh, regulated and maybe you know managed in a more orderly way, so that you don't see, you know, at least as many of them uh, just kind of sprawled around uh, the sidewalks. Hopefully you don't see people, you know, up on the sidewalks. And it just kind of explores uh, how we might bring these, these here, but in a, in, a, in a way that really benefits uh, Honolulu, you know, when you look at all our, our traffic problems, uh, but is also in, done in a way that's kind of orderly and, and you know, uh, not so impactful. Right. And, and I know there's concern about, you know, who would ride these scooters, you know, could you get kids on them? How dangerous would they be? 
Yeah, so uh, the actually the, the state, you know, the overarching state legislation that's moving uh, through the legislature in the session right now, um, the, the way it's drafted right now, it would not allow uh, kids 15 and under to use the scooters. And if you are 16, you would have to wear a helmet. Uh, the way it, it's, it, it works right now, the, um, the companies do not require people to wear helmets. They, they say they strongly encourage it. Um, but yeah, basically the way, the way it might work here, uh, the way things stand is actually kids would not be able to, to use these rental scooters. Now, I, I know we're talking rental scooters, but I have seen lots of people out there purchase their own electric scooters. Those are kind of bigger, bigger, heavier ones, black ones that I've seen out and about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is so these scooters are part of kind of the, the buzzword among like transportation wonks. It's called micro mobility, right? And that's all these, uh, whether they're rentals or not, they're these smaller, lightweight, they go a little slower than cars, maybe, you know, 20 miles an hour. Um, and yeah, they're just all these, these little devices, you know, people have motorized skateboards and motorized scooters. And you talk to city transportation officials, what they would like to maybe see eventually is, you know, you've got the, the King Street lane, which has you know, been controversial, but it's getting a lot more traffic, and these other protected lanes coming up, and where those lanes could be designated for, um, you know, scooters and other quote-unquote micromobility devices, you know, to get around uh, that, you know, that they would share it with, with just the regular pedal bikes, also e-bikes, you know, these motorized bikes that you're seeing more and more, and if you go on the mainland, they're, they're all over the place delivery people using these so there's they're seen as like alternatives to uh you know smaller to using a car on these smaller trips of like maybe a mile where it gets cars off the street you don't have to worry about parking or fighting with parking with as many cars that's kind of what the 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 goal is right um as as far as like them being you know the scooters the rental scooters being splayed out all over the sidewalks and and causing a, a hassle what the city might be moving towards is using designated parking areas, kind of like you see with the Bicky Bike Share, where you can't just drop the bike anywhere. You would have to park these scooters in, in the proper place. I think the question is how you really enforce that. Um, and, you know, companies say they have ways where they can actually enforce so people don't just drop them when they're done. Uh, but it's all about trying to, you know, bring these online, but in a way that just doesn't cause the same hassles. Right. Okay. many hassles as you've seen in other places. Right. So we'll just have to see what happens. But thanks so much, Marcel. Yep. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henre with today's Reality Check. Visit civilbeat.org. To... Are you free on February 29th? Because HPR is inviting you to lunch, an HPR members-only lunch, that is, at Chemo's in Lahaina, Maui on Saturday, February 29th. We'll celebrate our new frequency, 103.1 FM, Broadcasting HPR1 to West Maui, Molokai, and Lanai. Enjoy great food, get an update on the station, and enter to win HPR logo items. Space is limited, so get your tickets at hprtickets.org. As we look to better safeguard our natural resources here in Hawaii, environmental groups are looking toward an unlikely ally to help improve water quality in Malaya Bay in Maui. For the second time in as many years, oysters are being introduced into our waters in an effort to return the bay to a swimmable, fishable environment. Amy Hodges is the programs manager at the Maui Nui Marine Resource Council. She spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about this unusual pilot project. So oysters are natural filter feeders. They're nature's filters. So to stay alive, they suck in water and spit it out. And while they're doing that, it passes through their gills, and that's how they get their food source. They're filtering it out. Um, They're looking for phytoplankton. That's their food. But along with phytoplankton in the water column can come other things, sediment, chemicals, nutrients. So while they're filtering, looking for the food source, they're also helping to clean these other things out of the water column. So that's why they're great for this bioremediation project. We love using them because oysters are supposed to be here in the water. It's a natural method to help clean the water. It just makes sense. They're really fun to work with, and they're accessible. It's easy for people to understand, so it's something that a project that people can really grasp onto. So we've been getting a lot of positive feedback about that. 
Okay, so this wouldn't be the first time in Hawaii that oysters have been introduced into an environment to clean up the water and yield a positive ecological result. What have you learned from previous tests, and where else has this been done? Yeah, you're correct. We're not the first in Hawaii. It is already in place on Oahu for this purpose, for cleaning the water. And ultimately, all the projects in Hawaii are based off of successes from the East Coast. So New York Harbor has the Billion Oyster Project, and that's Billion with a B. Right now, I think they have about 28 million oysters in place there in New York Harbor, and they've seen a drastic improvement in their water quality over there. And now they've really had this resurgence of rebuilding their oyster populations, and with that comes along much cleaner water. Yeah, that goes into my next question. Are there any key issues that we face here in Hawaii that, say, an oyster introduction process in the East Coast might not face? things here traditionally in Hawaii, um, of course, our waters are much warmer than on the East Coast. And our waters are typically clearer when they're in good conditions. And on the East Coast, I'm originally from the East Coast myself, our water is dark and cold. Um, And with that, that's what the oysters, some species like they're using on the East Coast, are adapted to. They want that colder temperature and that darker water that has a higher content of food in it. So Their oysters there can breed a little easier. They have more food. They like that colder temperature to reproduce. Here in Hawaii, we don't have that. We do have some native species here of oysters in Hawaii, lots of them actually, and they're wonderful. But we don't see oyster populations exploding here like we do on the East Coast because we don't have the abundance of food source in our water unless it's not supposed to be there, like from land boys sources of pollution, so nutrient runoff that causes algae growth. So a really interesting figure I saw was that a single oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water. Now, this kind of might seem like a silly question, but how do oysters <laughs> stack up or compare against more industrial methods of water filtration? It is true that, yes, some species, like the ones that we're using here at Ma'alaya Harbor, are the Pacific oyster. That's the common name. And that one, on average, in good conditions, can filter up to 50 gallons a day, which is super impressive. The native species of oyster that they're using on Oahu and that we also want to incorporate here in our project in Ma'alaya on Maui, um, that one would take maybe four of the native species to filter the same amount of one of the Pacific species. And that's still really good. They're just a smaller oyster. So smaller in size, they just filter less water, but still doing a good job. And the thing to remember about oysters is that if they're alive, they're cleaning the water. So people often ask, how do you know if it's working? Well, of course, we do regular monitoring. We're measuring their size and their weight. If they're growing, we can assume they're removing things out of the water column. We're also measuring the water on a regular basis, checking for its quality. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if they're alive, they're doing their job. They're cleaning the water. Because they're filtering, they're eating, they're alive, and so we know that they're helping. As far as how they stack up against industrial methods, I mean, this is a natural process. It's not expensive. It's not an expensive thing. The oysters really just have to spawn them, and then they grow. So it's a cheaper alternative, and it's one that's meant to be there. And I think it's one that the community can really rally around. So the phrase that really comes to mind right now is nature's Mm -hmm. Brita filter. I'm not sure if that's an an appropriate (laughs) comparison, but uh, what do you think about that? Nature's Brita filter. Oh, my gosh, that's a new one. I'll have to coin that for you. Yeah, that's great. Making the water taste a little better. What is the ultimate goal of this project? What's the time frame, and why is Ma'alaya Bay specifically being chosen to introduce these oysters? We chose Ma'alaya Bay as our first pilot project because it just made sense visually where it lays on the island, the issues that it's facing, and the partners that are in place to help support a project in the area were all there. Ma'alaya Harbor lays at the bottom of the Pohakea watershed, which is, if you're thinking about Ma'alaya and you're visualizing it, Pohakea watershed is the one that you look at upslope where the wind turbines are, and it drains directly down into the harbor in Ma'alaya Bay where there's a large, natural, beautiful coral reef. This area is traditionally prone to fire. It's on the leeward side of the island. It's very dry. And anyone who lives on Maui knows that it is very prone to fire. We just had a large fire spread through there this past fall. It burned thousands of acres. And what happens then is the vegetation is lost after fire, the hillside, and the resulting erosion and sediment makes its way down into the water and causes a lot of sedimentation in the water there in the harbor. Ma'alaya is important because 
it's a nexus point in Maui between central Maui and west Maui. For human safety, a lot of people have to drive through there. It's an evacuation route. It's a route to the hospital um, for people who live on the west side of Maui. The harbor is located here. This is a major economic uh, driver here for Maui, where we have all of our visitors and our tour boats, and the Maui Ocean Center is here. There's a community of people that live in Ma'alaya. All these people want to see the health of Ma'alaya Harbor return. They want to be safe here. We also have the Coast Guard here. We have Dobor, all located right here. And, and what that brings to mind is that all these people are potential partners in this project. So the harbor itself faces a lot of sedimentation, nutrient runoff from the land. We have wastewater injection wells here. We have septic systems here. So there's a little bit of everything going on in this area. And so this made sense as a pilot project because it could represent a little bit of everything that the island has going on. Well, interesting you say that. You use the word pilot project. So this isn't the first time oysters have been introduced into a natural environment. If this project yields successful results in Ma'alaya Bay, can we expect similar programs to kickstart elsewhere in Hawaii? Definitely. As I said, there are already some uh, similar programs happening on Oahu. We'd love to see it in other places on Maui itself. Personally, I live uh, I live on the North Shore here, and I'd love to see it expanded to Kahului Harbor. I think that would be a natural next step. You know, we're looking a few years down the road before we would ever consider expanding and want to prove success at Malaya Harbor site first, of course. But I could see possibly Kahului Harbor as the next natural step, just because there is a lot of human use in the area, both in fishing, and we have multiple canoe clubs that practice there in the harbor, um, and I would love to see involvement by them and the cakey programs as part of the canoe clubs really caring for the oysters. I think that would make a lot of sense. So it's important for the budding foodies out there that might be listening to this that people can't just go out and eat these oysters because they're fundamentally dirty because they're filtrating out the dirty water that's in the bay. So is that fact in and of itself an indication of how dirty the bay is right now and say five, ten years down the line if these oysters are doing their job properly? Again, another silly question, but can people go out and eat these oysters? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Yes, inherently, you know, we're placing these oysters in places where the waters are impaired. And because they're natural filter feeders, they are going to have those impairments within themselves. So you're correct. These oysters are technically toxic. And if you were to come out and volunteer with us, you'd see in our cages, it's labeled toxic, do not eat. Research in progress. We strongly encourage people to please not eat these oysters. They're there to do a purpose. They're in this body of water because it is impaired they're doing their job you wouldn't these would not be safe for human consumption down the road of course we're not permitted to be growing oysters for consumption but down the road the ultimate goal would be that of course now these waters are clean enough that oysters in the wild would be safe for human consumption at this time there is a no shell fishing law in effect so you can't be harvesting at this time but wouldn't be great if populations down the road were established and healthy enough and the waters were clean enough where they could be consumed, I mean, that would be a wonderful thing. I do want to note that I don't mean to turn people off of eating oysters. I love eating oysters in restaurants myself. And it's important to note that oysters that are grown in certified aquaculture facilities and oyster farmers here in Hawaii, those oysters are completely safe to consume the ones that you get in restaurants. All these facilities are certified and checked for diseases and and very much safe. So I don't want to throw people off of consuming oysters, just not the ones that we're using for restoration. That was Amy Hodges, program manager for the Maui Nui Resource Council. She was talking with uh, the Conversations Harrison Patino about a pilot project that's introducing oysters in Maalaya Bay. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd, honolulumuseum.org.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the founder of Hawaii Hochi. He created the paper to present untold stories from Hawaii's Japanese laborers and sometimes dissenting views of an established Japanese-language Hawaii newspaper, Nipujiji. Uh, he wanted the paper to reflect the views of the local Japanese people, and it took editorial positions on Hawaii issues. For example, it supported Japanese and Filipino plantation workers during the 1920 strike, and it defended Japanese schools from discriminatory rules and regulations. After the Pearl Harbor bombing, uh, he renamed the paper Hawaii Herald in 1942 to try and Americanize it. However, the U.S. government still stopped the newspaper from printing, and he was even interrogated by the FBI. It kept the name until 1952 before returning to Hawaii Hochi. In 1969, a new Hawaii Herald was born, and it's printed in English. And it all started with Fred Makino, the founder of Hawaii Hochi, and the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And our winner today is Bruce from Kaimuki. You got it right. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we just talked about Fred Makino and Hawaii Ho Chi, and you may have heard that the newspapers, uh, the newspaper joined forces with Obun Hawaii this year. The merger ushers in a new era for two companies with deep roots in our community. We invited Susan Icor of AIO, uh, which is uh, Obun's parent company, and Vince Watabu of Hawaii Ho Chi to talk about what this means to the Japanese community and the locally printed publications of other ethnic groups across the state. It's a solution to challenging, changing times for the printing industry. Obun Hawaii is going to be celebrating its 50th year in Hawaii in 2020. And as we were looking at the operation, you know, printing is a factory and um, it works when you have economy of scale. So we've been looking for a while of ways to, you know, really do a significant step up. And we looked at a lot of possibilities, either acquiring printing or or becoming part of a larger printing operation and with all of the options we looked at Hawaii Ho Chi just felt right so many you know starting with just core values and a company from Japan coming to Hawaii and making a huge long-term commitment to the community I'll let Vince share with you some of the amazing things they're doing at Hawaii Ho Chi but we just felt that it would be a neat complement to what they're doing, and uh, we couldn't think of a better partner to carry on uh, what Obun's been doing. So, Vince, talk about Hawaii Ho Chi, and for, fo- you know, for our listeners who may not be familiar with what you do in our community. <laughs> Susan mentioned Obun Hawaii celebrating their 50th anniversary. Hawaii Ho Chi will be celebrating their 108th anniversary. And the history of Hawaii Ho Chi is is so very interesting that uh, it was started in 1912 by Fred Kinzaburo Makino. Uh, he was an English father with an English father with a Japanese mother born in Japan back in the 1800s when mixed marriages weren't, you know, <laughs> weren't so uh, accepted. They moved to Hawaii and Hawaii was the same thing. But in 1909, there was a big strike uh, plantation workers uh, against uh, the sugar plantation owners. He led the strike. And he was, because of that, he got thrown into jail. And during his time of uh, incarceration, he met a lot of people. But when he got out, people started to write stories about it. The people that were in prison with him, which were largely exaggerated and not the truth. (laughs) And what happened was the it was written in the Japanese other new, Japanese newspaper and it wasn't true so he wanted to get the truth out so he decided uh, in 1912 December 7 to start Hawaii Hochi and he published he his his actual goal was to get the truth out there and he also felt that information and teaching the young people American ways uh, to educate them to, so that they can become better citizens. And at that time, the, the population of Japan was decreasing, so he encouraged them to stay. Other things that he did, there was a movement to close down the Japanese schools in Hawaii. 
he himself and Hawaii Hochi fought that. They got a legal team together. They fought, and every, nobody thought they were going to win because they had to go up against the legislature, and uh, they took it to court, and they won. And interesting, if you take a look at it, today we have Japanese schools, but people tell me, can you imagine? They don't have any facts or data, but some of those people that went to the Japanese schools may have ended up as MIS people in the war, and they might have helped you know, shorten the war in Japan. So the history of Hawaii Hochi is, is uh, you know, very, very, I, I, I started reading about it, it was very interesting. This man was very, uh, you know, ahead of his time, I guess, yeah. Well, you know, when I drive around Oahu, you know, whether it's Manoa or uh, Kapahua area, and I see the Japanese language schools, you know, when they're weathered, and I, I just, I wonder about, you know, how they survive, and, and I know they work out partnerships with other group, whether it's Kumon or, or, mm. or some other business to kind of help keep afloat. So I, I wondered about our community, you know, when we have first generation, second generation, and, and and the fact that, you know, the newspapers really keep that fabric in the community alive and keep it together. The Japanese speaking and reading community is, is dwindling, you know, the people from Hawaii. But we, we are owned by uh, Shizuoka Shimbun, and one of their goals is to keep the Japanese language alive. So they've been subsidizing us for quite a long time, and we keep afloat. So our president, Taro Yoshida, was looking for another way of generating more income, and, and this is where the merger came about. Uh, Open Hawaii allows us to do things that we don't do at uh, Hawaii Hochi. Right now, we're basically a uh, newspaper. It's, we do a lot of community-based newsletters, the Phil Chronicle, Phil Lamb, Courier, uh, and Lanai Times, Hamakua, uh, you know, we we do a whole bunch of newsletters and some smaller pocket kind of uh, newspapers. Uh, the larger one goes to Star Star Blue, <laughs> Star <laughs> well, Advertiser. Yeah. You, you know, Susan, though, uh, thinking about this merger, and I know Dwayne Carisu feels very strongly about his roots um, growing up on the plantation. So right. it it really is a nice fit. Oh, we, we couldn't be happier. And, you know, one of the things that was so exciting is as we got to learn more about Hawaii Hochi, we really found that we complemented as opposed to duplicated. So, for example, the uh, Hawaii Hochi Presses, as Vince mentions, does web presses, which is uh, the, the larger newspaper printing. And the niche that Obun has is, I would say, more on the, the, the smaller run printing, a lot of commercial printing. Um, I think our client bases are complementary as opposed to overlapping. Um, and yes, you know, um, definitely one of our high priorities was um, our clients and our employees in that continuity. And what this merger allowed us to do is, you know, uh, December 31st, we all celebrated Oshokatsu, Happy New Year, <laughs> opened on January 2nd, you know, as uh, um, Obun Hawaii still in the same location, and then part of a larger Hawaii Hochi team now. So very seamless transition. You know, most of our, the employees have now become part of the Hawaii Hochi family. So then wh what's the vision going forward? Taro is interested in growth, and Obun Hawaii provides us with a whole new avenue outside of the newspaper industry. They have a lot of Japanese account as well. The whole idea is to grow, to sustain ourselves so that we can support the Japanese newspapers and all the other community newspapers as well, because we really feel that the people need to get information. You know, it's, it's so interesting that as I was reading the, the bio of Makino and he was being in jail and and these people were uh, writing you know false kind of statements even back then there was fake news mm, <laughs> yes. so we allow the community newspapers to get the, the word out through these things and we want to sustain that and the best way to sustain it is to look for different avenues of revenue and you also were with the Hawaii Okinawan Center <laughs> yes, yes. And, and the Okinawan Festival. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, talk about that because that's gone through some flux. And you said that when, when they had the the uh, Okinawan Festival that was canceled at the park, uh, you had to make that decision because of the weather. <laughs> well, you know, I'm the one that made the call, but uh, certainly I didn't do it by myself. 
but you know, they, it it was a um, very stressful time. The, the hurricane was coming, and we uh, just checked with the city every day, and they had meetings, and it it wouldn't move. And I told them by Wednesday I have to make the call, and uh, on Wednesday the hurricane was still coming. So I, we decided to cancel the festival because on Thursday, all the goods get into the tents and everything. And if the hurricane hit, all of that would have been gone. So we made the call. But a lot of things, you know, good things came out of that. After that, the Okinawan people rallied. We had a Andagi sale at City Hall and we sold out. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we have our annual bone dance. We decided to have a craft fair. And since we couldn't service everybody with the andagi, we had more andagi for sale. So we, the people got together. We ordered T-shirts for the festival. Because of those events, we sold out our T-shirts. So uh, the Okinawan people came together. And Hawaii uh, Hochi, we print the Uchinanchu newsletter. And Obun prints when I was there, we print almost everything else. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so between both of us, we would print most of the, the things for the Hawaii United Okinawan Association. Right, so you have those ties. And we should mention that, Vince, you used to be with the bone for, for many years, and because of health reasons, you had to step away. But uh, it just kind of worked out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really just a family coming together again. <laughs> uh, you know, when the press release went out, I was getting texts. Oh, you're going back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, in Hawaii, our community is so connected. And so I just felt like, you know how when you know that something has worked well and it's right. Um, so we're really excited about the future for Open Hawaii. That was Susan Icor and Vince Butabu talking about the melding of two longtime companies, Obun Hawaii and Hawaii Hochi. Well, guess what? We're out of time. Up tomorrow, it's an Aloha Friday show with arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa. We do welcome feedback. We're on Facebook and Twitter or go to hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.